The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get, we get back into Genesis this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we can be here together this evening to enjoy the fellowship of friends and to study your word and be refreshed by your word. We pray that as we study these things that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen our faith, encourage us, and that your word would uh, just come alive to us. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Genesis 31. Now, the last three weeks, I sort of took a little rabbit trail. And we talked about divine guidance and how to know God's will. And I did that for a couple of reasons, but textually we see this playing itself out in the life of Jacob. How did Jacob make decisions? How did he know uh, which way to go and what to do? And we see that the same two things were operative in the decision-making in Jacob's life as we have in our life. Number one, there's the special revelation of God. And we have the special revelation of God in the 66 books of the canon of Scripture. Now, he had special revelation where God was still communicating through theophanies and through dreams and through visions, but special revelation is special revelation, and it has ceased today. There has been no special revelation given since approximately 95 A.D. So the only way you can know God's will today is to go to the Word of God. The second way in which God made his will known was that he, uh, he did it through circumstances and through situations. And what well, we'll see Sunday morning, in fact, when we get into the sixth letter of the seven letters in Revelation, is the concept of an open door or opportunity. God often gives us opportunities to do things, and that's one gives us an opportunity to use our volition and to apply the word that we know and the doctrine that we know to those circumstances. So in Genesis chapter 31, we see both of these uh, dimensions to knowing God's will at play, the circumstances and, and special revelation. The trouble with circumstances is that we don't really know how to read them. So you should never ultimately base your decision-making just on circumstances because just because you get an opportunity to do something doesn't mean you should say yes. Sometimes the test is to see if you'll say no. 
So just because opportunities are there, just because circumstances seem right, doesn't mean it's always the best or wisest decision. But we'll see one way in which God uses circumstances in our situation here in chapter 31. Before we get there, let's kind of remind ourselves where we've come from. Jacob was forced to flee. Now, that's a key term because he had to flee from his home down in the promised land because he had uh, cheated his twin brother Esau out of his birthright and out of his inheritance. So he had to flee north because Esau was breathing fiery fire and threats of murder and ready to kill his brother because he had been uh, cheated. Jacob was living up to his name as the chiseler. And so he headed north to uh, Padan Aram located up in Syria. And this was the family, uh, sort of the background where Abraham's family, where his cousins, where the descendants of his uh, uncle had, uh, had located. And so Jacob heads there, and part of the reason he's going there is to find a wife. He met Rachel right off the bat, fell in love with Rachel. Her father Laban, who is Jacob's uncle, can out-chisel, out-cheat, out-maneuver, out-manipulate even Jacob. And so we see this dynamic in the Laban, what's referred to by the uh, scholars as the Jacob-Laban narrative here from chapter 29 through chapter 31 seeing who's going to get the upper hand. And so Laban told him that if he worked for seven years, then he could have Rachel as his wife. So he worked for seven years, and then on the wedding night, uh, Laban uh, switched girls on him so that the older daughter became his wife, Leah. And, of course, he didn't find out, Jacob didn't find out till the next morning. And when he realized he had been duped, he had been uh, outfoxed by his uh, now father-in-law, he went to him and made a bargain for Rachel. So now he had to work another seven years to, uh, uh, for, as his bridal payment or dowry for, for Rachel. And then following those seven years, now he's been there 14 years, he spent another six years just working for Laban. And in that time, what we'll discover in our passage tonight is Laban cheats him and outfoxes him ten times according to what Jacob says in chapter 31. But you see, God is just, and ultimately there is the uh, outworking of the Supreme Court of Heaven, especially in this situation because Jacob is in the line of the Abrahamic promise. And so God is working out specifics in Jacob's life because it's related to what God is doing in human history in calling out a new people for his name based on his promise to Abraham that God would call out a new people through the descendants of Abraham and he made an unconditional promise to Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant that he would pro- that he would give the descendants of Abraham a specific piece of real estate the land promise that he would bless all nations through a, a seed of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and that Abraham's descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore, and that th- this seed would be a blessing to all mankind. So the three elements of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing, and everybody says that in their sleep now. And that's the key to understanding Genesis and the everything that comes in the Old Testament from uh, 
Genesis on ultimately has to do with one of those three elements. And ultimately, when you come into the New Testament to Galatians, we discover that Jesus Christ is the seed, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. He is that seed, and through Jesus Christ, all people are blessed because Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the one who went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins so that everybody can have eternal life. Well, Jacob the Chiseler gets outfoxed and cheated by his father-in-law a number of times. And finally, God begins to go to bat for Jacob. He has learned a number of lessons. I think that we can say in terms of what happens to Jacob in Genesis 31 and then in chapter 32, that Jacob has learned some humility. He's not the same arrogant, uh, self-centered individually was that we saw him as a young man where he's trying to outmaneuver his brother Esau and make sure he's the one who gets the blessing instead of trusting in, trusting in God. And so God begins to bless Jacob. God is using that as a circumstance to not only fulfill the promise that God had already made to him, but to set the stage for Jacob's return to the land. It's been 20 years. So to give you just a brief overview of chapter 31, we learn that Jacob the Chiseler has been uh, outfoxed by his uncle. He's been tricked out of his first choice for a wife. He's been forced to work for 20 years now, and he's been cheated out of his income. But God was true to his promise to bless Jacob and to protect him while he was out of the land. And that has come to a fulfillment at, by the end of chapter 30. Jacob has become quite prosperous, and that sets up the problem, the conflict, the difficulty that he faces in chapter 31. Jacob realizes now, according to 31.1, that God's blessing has caused his in-laws to resent him. Now, I know nobody here has ever had that problem where you have success or something good happens to you and then people at work or people in your family or other people resent you and get angry and you become the object of their hatred and their jealousy and their envy. But that's what happened to Jacob. And so the problem that he now faces is a problem that is common to everyone down through the corridors of time, and that is the life and the welfare of his family. Their security is threatened because now that he has been blessed so greatly by God, his, his in-laws, his brothers-in-law and his father, father-in-law seem to be turning against them. And he knows that with the way that uh, Laban is such a manipulator, that their whole livelihood, everything that they have is in jeopardy. Something could happen. And so he knows that he can no longer stay in Padan Aram, that it's time for him to go home. And so this is one of the ways that God maneuvers the circumstances and closes all the other opportunities so it's time for Jacob to leave and to get out of there. This situation is not unfamiliar to most of us. Security is one of the major issues that most of us face, where our livelihood is threatened by loss of jobs, uh, loss of purchasing power when we go through a period of inflation with gas prices going through the roof for whatever reason. It ca- puts a financial pressure on everybody. People are also living in, people living in 
uh, urban areas like we do here in Houston recognize that there's always a security problem because crime is rampant. We have more and more stories on the news about carjacking and people breaking into homes. And instead of just breaking into a house and robbing it, they wait until somebody gets home so they can uh, hold them at gunpoint and, and uh, show them where all the valuables are. We have drive-by shootings and gangs and everything else. There really is no security in this life other than our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So each time we face a situation like this, it's a test. It's a test in our spiritual life to see if we're going to respond to that test with the faith rest drill by claiming promises that God has given us, promises like I quote quite Frequently, Isaiah 40:31, Isaiah 41:10, Philippians uh, 4, 6, and 7, 1 Peter 5, 7. Many of these promises need to be memorized by us and right on the tip of our mental tongue, as it were, so that when we face these fears, anxieties, situations of insecurity, rather than focusing on the circumstances, we can grab a hold of these promises to stabilize our emotions and bring some sort of objectivity to the situation. And we see the same thing with Jacob. He uses his faith rest drill in this passage. He uses his doctrinal orientation, and he has uh, inner happiness and stability in this particular situation. There's a contrast between him as well and how well he handles the test and how Rachel, in contrast, is starting to act like Jacob. Now, somebody told me one time that when people have been married for a while, that the wives start acting like the husbands, and you know, you, they start. Somebody even said they start looking alike, but I don't know about that. But Rachel clearly starts showing these same uh, tr- traits that Jacob shows. Of course, she's she's related to him; they're cousins, and. Uh, Laban's got the same problem. He's a he's a chiseler and a cheater and a manipulator, and so Rachel probably came by it uh, genetically as a trend of her sin nature as well. Now, this lesson in chapter 31 has a number of important lessons for us, and so we have to get an overview of this before we get into the lessons. It starts off with uh, Jacob's brothers-in-law expressing re- uh, resentment and jealousy toward Jacob, and he knows that he needs to leave, and so he flees. Same word is used here in the Hebrew that's used back in uh, chapter uh, 28 when he flees from uh, the land of Canaan. So the author wants us to understand that there's a similarity between the two episodes. He has to flee, and Laban doesn't find out for three days, and then Laban pursues him, and when Laban finally catches up with him after a week, Laban accuses him falsely of stealing from him and stealing his teraphim. The teraphim are household gods, and they're little idols, and they can be small or they can be large. Uh, they can come in different sizes, and they had different, uh, different purposes. We're not exactly sure what all of the significances were with teraphim, and scholars differ and debate exactly uh, why they were used and what their purpose was, but some things are clear from the text. And then Jacob, because he's in the right, he's being unjustifiably accused by Laban of having stolen the teraphim. See, he doesn't know that Rachel stole them. So he is indeed uh, innocent of all charges. 
and he has not stolen anything from Jacob. All the wealth that he has that was originally Laban's uh, was transferred to him by God in uh, fair business dealings. But Laban wants to accuse him of stealing all of his possessions from him. And when it turns out that uh, Laban is unable to find the teraphim, that Jacob, in, a, in his just justifiable position, turns the table on Laban and by accusing him of cheating him all these years. And so what we see is how God in this process works out his justice in their life. Now, we don't always see that in our life. Sometimes we say, well, we're like the psalmist, and we say, Lord, how long will the, will the wicked prosper? And the Lord eventually is going to uh, bring judgment to everyone, but we don't always see it. See, we think that the judgment on the wicked is only good if, if we get to witness it. When somebody has, has mistreated us and somebody has uh, treated us unjustly, we think that the only proper uh, vindication is if we get to watch them suffer, but the Lord doesn't uh, operate quite that way. Now, as we get into this passage, there's a couple of things that we should note. First of all, there is a legal wrangling in the context, a legal wrangling. And this is indicated because in verse 36 of this particular chapter, uh, we read, Then Jacob was angry and uh, rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Aben, Where is my trespass? And this idea that he rebuked Aben is, is really this word, reeve. This word, reeve, in the Hebrew, which means to strive or to contend. They were contending with each other. And it's a legal term, and it's often found in court cases where someone is bringing a lawsuit against someone else. And that indicates a legal context. And I just want to bring that up because all of the Bible is set within a legal Context. Our relationship with God is always grounded biblically within a legal context, the context of a covenant or a contract. God, uh, the God of the Bible, has entered into a contractual relationship with mankind from the very beginning, and he has bound himself to work with man in the terms of these covenants that he establishes, the creation covenant in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, and then its modification in the uh, Adamic covenant in Genesis chapter 3, otherwise known as the curse on sin, then the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Mosaic covenant, new covenant, all of these are the covenants that God establishes showing man what he will do and how he is going to work in history and then man has, certain obligations are placed, uh, placed upon mankind. There's a trend today that I just, I've become casually aware of this, I guess, called the emerging church. This is just kind of a side note. This is the latest move in the whole church growth, praise, and worship phenomenon. Last, uh, last uh, Thursday, we had a Dallas Seminary alumni luncheon, and Dr. Leitner came down from uh, Dallas Seminary and gave a little uh, talk on the emerging church movement, and it's just uh, there was a PBS special. I think some of you watched it last um, 
last December, I think, or November, and one of these large churches, all these churches are huge because they attract people who really don't want to know the Word. They just want to get together and emote over God. And they sing a lot of uh, praise and worship choruses. And they, uh, in this particular church, instead of having pews or chairs like we have, they all have sofas so everybody can make sure they have intimate fellowship. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and they throw out the Word of God. They don't believe in original sin anymore. They get upset with uh, uh, traditional Christianity and all its emphasis on legality, like justification by faith. See, the whole, all, of, all of salvation is couched in legal terminology. We are condemned. Legally, we are guilty. That's a legal term, justification by faith, the whole concept of righteousness. These are all legal terms legal terms and so the Bible constantly couches man's relationships within the framework of, of uh, legal terminology so when we uh, look at uh, Genesis chapter 31 and we find that the word reeve is used here and it's used in the midst, midst of these speeches Jacob makes a speech then Laban makes a speech and there are charges and counter charges it gives a, a legal tone to the entire episode which does conclude with the signing of a contract the making of a contract or covenant between Jacob and Laban it's sort of uh, it, it, it's more of a truce. They really don't become friends after this. It's more of a truce, but their enmity toward one another uh, does continue. So we have this legal wrangling that goes on in the context. Secondly, there's foreshadowing that takes place here. This is a situation where Jacob has been forced to leave the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to all their descendants. He has to leave the land, and this is his return to the land. And it foreshadows two future situations. The first occurred under Joshua when the, the descendants of Jacob had left the land to go to Egypt, which is where they will go at the end of the book of Genesis. They'll go down to Egypt. And then a period of about 400 years goes by while they're down in Egypt before God finally rescues them and redeems them and purchases their freedom. Once again, legal terminology is used there. They come out of Egypt and they enter into the land again. So it foreshadows the entry of the people into the land under Joshua. And then that, in turn, is a foreshadowing of the final reentry of the people into the land that occurs at the end of the tribulation period when we have the final restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel and to the promised land. So there's foreshadowing that goes on. That, and the emphasis here is that no matter how many flaws and failures there are, and Jacob certainly made a lot of mistakes and failed in a lot of ways, God is always true to his promise. And that's one of the key themes throughout this whole section of, of Genesis is we see how, how uh, all the failures, the flaws, the, the sin nature trends of all the patriarchs. These are not always uh, wonderful people. They're not the kind of folks that you'd want to invite over for dinner and have a wonderful dinner party with. I can't imagine wanting to invite Jacob over for dinner. He just doesn't seem like a very wonderful personality as it emerges from the Scripture. And yet we see 
that God is faithful to his promise and he uses fallen, flawed sinners just like us to accomplish his plans and purposes in history. So that's tremendous encouragement for all of us because a lot of times we're not a whole lot better. Our sins may be different from Jacob's sins, but they're just as flawed as, as his. So we have this foreshadowing that takes place, and ultimately the emphasis is on God's faithfulness, that no matter what transpires, no matter what failures there may be in the, the circumstances, God is still faithful to his word. He's been faithful to Jacob. Jacob uh, left the land and as a result of God's direction. And while he's out of the land, God had promised to uh, prosper him. And God had promised to, to bless him. And indeed, that is exactly what happened while he was uh, out of the land. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 43, we read, Thus the man Jacob, that is Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now I want to flash back a minute to chapter 28. Flash back to Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob is leaving the land. Remember, it's almost one of those things where he's escaping in the dead of night. He only has the clothes on his back. He doesn't have any, any camels. He doesn't have any herds. He doesn't have any flocks. He doesn't have any possessions. He doesn't have anything. He's just trying to get out before Esau can catch him and kill him. And on his way out of the land, he spends the night at Bethel, and he has a theophany. There is a vision of God, and he sees that stairway to heaven with the angels going up and coming down. And in the midst of that, God appears to him and reconfirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob. And in verse 15, God said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And he promises that he is going to protect Jacob no matter where he goes and that he is going to provide for him. And that is exactly what happened. And so in the, even though he is uh, outmaneuvered out and outmanipulated, outfoxed by his deceptive uncle, God is going to discipline Laban in the process. And when it's all over with, Laban is the one who ends up losing most of his flocks and his herds to Jacob, so that Jacob ends up becoming the wealthy one. The word that is used to uh, define his prosperity is the Hebrew word parats which is a verb which means to break out, to break down, or to burst forth. And it indicates the powerful multiplication and spreading of something in all directions. It has the idea of just explosive prosperity. That in just a short time, uh, Jacob's herds and flocks just exploded. And if you remember, we saw that strange episode back in chapter uh, 25 where he entered into this agreement with Laban 
that uh, all the uh, spotted and all of the mottled uh, sheep and lambs that were born would would come to him. So Jacob made sure he, I mean Laban made sure that he moved all the spotted and and mottled lambs off somewhere else so they couldn't interbreed and produce that. And Jacob went through this silly superstitious thing like most Christians do. So many Christians have little superstitious things. You got rabbit's foots and you don't walk under a ladder and all these silly things that people do, thinking it'll bring him good luck or prosperity. And so he creates these these striped sticks in the ground where he peels the bark off, and so it's dark and white and dark and white, and you've got these stripes thinking that somehow that's going to create a sympathetic reaction in the wombs of the ewes so that they produce striped and mottled colored uh, lambs. Well, see, this is just an evidence of how God tends to meet us where we are. And God isn't the kind of God that said, well, you just screwed up by doing that, so I'm not going to fulfill my promise. God meets Jacob where he is, and he still prospers him. And so all the the uh, lambs that are born are uh, speckled and mottled. And so his flocks increase and Laban's decrease. But that's the hand of God working on that situation. That is God blessing uh, Jacob to prepare him for the return to the land. In verse 31, we see the, re- the development of the reasons to flee, why he needs to leave. And ultimately what we see here is a basic problem. That's one of the key elements in, in any good story, in any good narrative, is there's a conflict and there's a problem. And whenever there's a problem, we ought to think in terms of problem solving. How? What is the problem that Jacob faces? What is the solution to that? Because we'll face similar problems. And the problem that he's facing here is people testing, more specifically family testing. See, everybody goes through that sometime or another, whether it's conflicts that you have with your parents or conflicts that you have with your kids or with your in-laws or with your uh step parents or whoever it may be we all go through people testing and it may involve family it may involve uh, my favorite one is is bureaucratic testing that's a subcategory people testing and i don't just mean dealing with uh bureaucrats who work for the government you have the same bureaucratic mentality in all these companies that provide uh, telephone customer service that's an oxymoron isn't it nobody cares I mean, you call them up, you've got a major problem. They don't care. They, they're just making a buck. They're getting paid minimum wage and for their minimum intelligence. And so they, they don't care what your problem is. They don't care how much it's disrupting your life. And it just drives all of us absolutely nuts. We just want to get involved in telephone rage and everything else and throw the phone through the window or beat it on the desk or yell at him and you know it's just another test just a test of our relaxed relaxed mental attitude to have a little grace orientation so that when no one seems to be watching we're going to let a little spiritual character shine through instead of our sin nature because of course we have to remember that the angels are watching and we're involved in a test so we have a test here with Jacob he has a problem with his in-laws 
and he comes to realize the animosity directed toward him from his brothers-in-law and even from his father-in-law, and he realizes that this is so bad that he needs to change his circumstances. Just as he had to flee from Esau, the situation is almost as serious here, and he needs to Flee, he needs to flee from Laban and from his brothers-in-law. Verse 1 says, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons. So this was probably reported to him by other people. He probably didn't hear them uh, whine about this, but they were whining and maligning Jacob, and their words were reported back to Jacob, and they were saying that Jacob has taken away, and the idea there is they're accusing Jacob of having done some underhanded deal where he stole all of the wealth uh, from their fathers. And, of course, that would be passed on to them by way of inheritance. So they were taking it personally, and they were emotionally involved, and they were accusing Jacob of being the, the reason that they were going to end up impoverished. So they're saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our fathers, and from what was our fathers he has acquired all this wealth. And the word there translated wealth is actually the Hebrew word, Kavod, which is, sometimes means wealth, sometimes it means glory. Actually, the core meaning of the word is heavy and uh, it, weighty, something that is significant, sort of like the way you know, the hippies used to talk back in the 70s. That's real heavy, man. That's heavy. Well, that's, that's kavod. That's the word that's used for the glory of God. It is that which is heavy or weighty or serious. And so it came to describe Wealth that he has become uh, extremely wealthy, and he is a man to be uh, to be contended with now because of his wealth and what that wealth means in terms of his position in society. And uh, so Jacob has now come out on top, not because he has outmaneuvered Laban. But as he recognizes in this passage, because God is the one who has blessed him. And that's the key that we're seeing in the spiritual growth of Jacob, is that he is developing genuine humility. He is realizing that what he has is not the result of his energy, of his manipulation, of his scheming, but because he finally got to the point where there wasn't anything he could do except rely upon God, and God uh, was waiting for that opportunity. Once he relaxed, then God blessed him and God prospered him. But the irony of this is that in this case, he's being a, the cheater is being accused of cheating, but the cheater hasn't cheated. So he is innocent of all charges, but his reputation has preceded him, so it's probably difficult for him to convince anybody that he's innocent. But that's the facts of the situation. And in verse 2, he discovers that Laban is also looking upon him unfavorably. Jacob saw the and Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. There's an interesting play on words uh, that develops in here. We have a word that shows up here for countenance. It's the word for face, and it's the uh, Hebrew word uh, pani or panim. And where this whole episode, which begins in chapter 31 of uh, Jacob's return to Israel, culminates 
at this event that occurs when he's down at a place called Peniel, which means the place where I met God face to face. And in that word Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L, the E-L is God, and the P-E-N is the, the Hebrew word for face. So the, he, the writer is using this little this word play, this, this, uh, this paranomasia, to start developing this theme that here you have the fact that, that J- Laban's face is turned against him, but it will end up where he has a face-to-face encounter with God at Bethel, on, at Peniel, on his way back into Israel. So he recognizes that uh, even Laban is turned against him. Laban's attitude is now one of animosity and resentment, and so he's feeling trapped. He doesn't know what to do. He knows he needs to get out of there, but he's not sure what to do. And then he gets special revelation. See, many times we're not sure what to do. We can't pray to God, and he's not going to vibrate one for yes and two for no. But we have his word that gives us the wisdom that we need to apply to the circumstances. And so in verse 3, we see the special revelation that Jacob had. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. See, this is a reiteration. It's a subtle reiteration of the land promise. Return to the land, and I'll be with you. He's reminding uh, Jacob of his promise. It takes us back, Genesis 31.3 takes us right back to the verse we saw a minute ago, Genesis 28.15, that God would be with him uh, wherever he went and he would bring him back to the land. So what is this? What is Genesis 28.15? It's a promise. It's a promise. God made a specific promise to, uh, to Jacob. Now, one of the things that you have to always realize when you claim a promise is make sure the promise is given to you. Now, you can't claim this promise. See, I can't claim this promise. This is a promise that God made to Jacob. See, when there are too many people who go into the Old Testament and they take promises that God made to Israel and they try to apply them today. And you can't do that because we're not Jews and it doesn't have anything to do with the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And so, but the principle is still there that you have a promise, and the way Jacob deals with the situation now, the conflict, the problem of people testing, is he's going to go back to the promise that God has made to him in Genesis 28:15. And all God is doing in Genesis 31:3 is reminding him of the promise. This is the same thing that happens. Hopefully, when you get your Bible out and you read your Bible on a regular basis and underline promises and make notations in the margins so that you can go back or you have a little notebook that you can jot promises down in and memorize those promises so that when you come to various kinds of tests, you know the promises that you can claim. Now, just a quick review of the faith rest drill. There are three components to the faith rest drill. The first component is that of mixing faith with a promise. We've seen that phrase in Hebrews chapter 4, mixing our faith with a promise. That's where we seize upon a promise or a statement, a, uh, a sentence in the Scripture, and we say, okay, God, I'm going to hold you to this. You know, this whole idea of claiming a promise 
that uh, that's a great English idiom, but where does it come from? Probably comes from you know the gold fields staking a claim on something. I ran into the reason I brought that up is about three years ago I was teaching on the faith rest drill in Kiev, and uh, I don't know that Myers had ever quite used the phrase claiming a promise, and I use the phrase claiming a promise, and um, the translator looked at me like, "What does that mean?" And and that really caused us to stop and think about okay what does this mean how can we translate this over into into a Russian idiom because we don't realize how much the verbiage that we use in English is real really really uh, idiomatic and um, so it, it took a little while uh, before we figured out how to properly express that and this is one of the challenges the missionary space is not not only do they have to communicate in a cross-cultural situation but they need to train their uh, translators so that they can understand how to uh, the whole theological concept you're trying to to communicate and then they can have to in turn take that and translate into that target language. So it, it can't be done easily or simply. In fact, I know of cases where uh, missionaries just went somewhere and hired some uh, just standard English translators and gave them uh, booklets and pamphlets to translate, and they translated them into Russian. And years later, they discovered they were basically meaningless in Russian because the translators weren't trained biblically, doctrinally, theologically to be able to actually communicate the sense of what was in the English. They did a wooden literal translation that didn't mean anything in the target language. So you always have to understand the concept. So we mix our faith with a promise. We take a promise of Scripture and we latch onto it and we say, God, I'm holding you to this. This is what you said. And I'm going to hold you to this, and as a result of that, I'm going to be able to uh, come up with a, the, a, a, a stable mindset. And so the second stage that we go through, we mix faith with a promise, and then we think through the rationale that's embedded in the promise. For example, if you were Jacob and you were in, uh, up in Padan Aram and you were under uh, people testing from your in-laws, you would sit there and you'd say, now wait a minute, God made a promise to me. God promised that uh, I would be taken back to the land that he promised uh, my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac, that he also promised me that my descendants would be like the dust of the earth and that my descendants would be spread throughout the whole earth. Now, they can't take my life here because that's that's not quite going to happen yet. God said he would take me back to the land. So I have to recognize that God made a promise to uh, Abraham and Isaac. He made the same promise to me. He, just as he was faithful to them, he'll be faithful to me and he'll take me back to the land. So then as you think through what's going on in that promise and how it relates to other things, you can reach a conclusion that gives you a sense of stability. It stabilizes your emotions and solidifies your mental attitude so that you can relax and trust in God. All of a sudden, everything is clear. You don't know how things are going to, uh, going to work out, but you know that they will work out. 
have a great illustration of this. I know of a situation where an individual has uh, looked like they were going to lose their job. And everybody around them thinks that they lost their job. Well, it turned out that a couple of weeks later, the employer decided, well, you're not going to lose your job. But you can't tell anybody. Uh, the employer has to save face a little bit. So everybody thinks that this person is going to lose their job. Now, the trouble is that they keep coming to that person and saying, you're just handling this so well. You're just so relaxed. How can you handle this? So we're all mad and angry at the employer because they're taking this job away from you and you're just so relaxed. Well, they can't say anything. Now, you see, that's how we should be if we don't know what's going to happen. See, the reason they're relaxed is because they know they're not going to lose their job. They just can't tell anybody. But see, we should all be that relaxed and calm even though we don't know what's going to happen because we know that nothing's going to surprise God. No circumstance, no situation that we face in life threatens uh, God's stability, threatens God's plan. He knows that it may be a surprise to us, but he knows what the solution's going to be and how he's going to provide next month, the next month, whatever it's going to be. We should be just as relaxed today in the midst of the uncertainty as if we knew what that answer was. And see, what we see here is Jacob has matured because he remains relaxed. Look at what happens. In chapter 31, he says, he, he is, God has appeared to him, tells him to return to the land, and now he has to figure out how to implement it. See, God told him to go back, but he didn't tell him how. He didn't tell him how to deal with his wives. He's got two wives. He's got 12 sons and one daughter. God doesn't give him the details of how he's going to move all of his family back. What about their, uh, their attitude? Do you think Rachel and Leah are going to leave Daddy? Well, you've got to convince them that they need to be going 500 miles away. And not only does he have to move his two wives and the concubines and the 12 sons and the one daughter, but he's got all the flocks and herds. He's got logistical problems now he didn't have when he left the land of Canaan. He's going home with a with a crowd. He's going home with all with uh, all of his wealth and numerous possessions, and so he has to figure out how he's going to do what God's going to do, has told him to do. And that's the same thing that's true for us in decision making. We often know what God wants us to do. It's working out the details of implementation, and that comes from the doctrine that's in your soul and developing what I've pointed out the last several weeks is wisdom. Wisdom is that skillful application of doctrine. Now, that doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, skill in anything comes with practice, 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 and that's what we're going to see in uh, our study in Hebrews chapter 5 is that uh, the individuals that Hebrews was written to had failed to practice. They were no longer training themselves in, in the practice of righteousness. So they, they had lost their, uh, their skill training. But we need to constantly be training and applying doctrine in every situation, and that is what uh, builds skill and what the Old Testament calls wisdom. So Jacob decided to have a family council. 
God didn't tell him to do that. He decided the best way to do this is we're just going to, I'm going to call Rachel and Leah together and uh, make sure they understand what's going on. And in verse 5, he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. And once again, he uses this word uh, for countenance or attitude. It's the uh, Hebrew word, pane, for face. And again, he's pointing out the writer's very subtle in using this word face that's going to ultimately end up in Jacob meeting God face to face at Peniel in chapter 32. So he says, your father's attitude is not uh, good to me. He doesn't look on me favorably. His face is dark and cloudy when it looks on me. But in contrast, the God of my father has been with me. Notice the shift. Let's not focus on the negative circumstance. Let's focus on God who provides direction and stability in the midst of uncertain circumstances. And then he goes on and he says in verse 6, and you know... And with all my might, I have served your father. So now he's going to make a case for his integrity. He's going to explain that uh, he has been faithful to Laban, but Laban has been unfaithful to him. In the same way, he is juxtaposing Laban's unfaithfulness with God's God's faithfulness. He says, You know that with all my might I've served your father, yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. So over the course of twenty years, he makes one deal and then he changes it. He can't keep his word. He's constantly uh, manipulating me and he always gets the upper hand. And in verse 8, he, 8 through uh, 12, he reminds the uh, Rachel and Leah of the of how he gained how God worked to provide uh, prosperity for him with the flocks. He said, "If he said thus, that is, if Laban said thus, the speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, if Laban said the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me." He builds a case showing that no matter what Laban did, God was always the one who worked to provide the prosperity to uh, to Jacob. It says, It happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Now, we didn't know that when we read about it in chapter 30. I referenced this. All we knew was the deal he made with Laban. We weren't let in on the secret that he got the idea from revelation from God. So we see that behind all of this, special revelation from God. Verse 11, he says, Then the angel of God, this is a parallel term to angel of the Lord. Angel of God is used in just two or three places, but it is a synonym for angel of the angel of the Lord, and it refers to the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who reveals the Father. This is what John 1 says. No one has seen God at any time. That means Jacob didn't see God, Moses didn't see God, Joshua didn't see God the Father. They saw God the Son, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. That's the same thing that we see in uh, Abraham. I'm ready. Uh, Throughout 
uh, Genesis, we see those who are ready to serve God say, Here I am. This is the typical response of humility and the grace-oriented believer ready to serve the Lord. Verse 12, And he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks or streaks speckled and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing for you. See, the justice of God comes to bat to protect the believer. And if it doesn't happen in time, it will happen eventually. And God reminded him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. I want you to notice what Jacob has done here. He has called the family council. He's reminded them of the promise of God. He's talked to them about how to implement the faith rest drill, basically. And he has said, this is God's directive, and this is how we're, we're going to implement it. And as a result of the fact that he presents a solid case, he's relaxed, he's calm. Notice he treats uh, Laban with respect. He refers to him as your father, not that dirty so-and-so he, or the cheat or anything like that. He's not mad. He's not angry. He's not emotional. He builds a very solid case for what he wants to do. He shows respect for, uh, for Laban. And that's a tough thing for us to respect the office that a person holds, even though the person who holds it is not worthy of respect. Americans have a really tough time with that. Whether it's an employer, whether it's a superior officer in the military, whether it's a, a, a husband in a marriage, whether it's parents over children, we have a hard time showing respect to someone because of the office they hold if they are not uh, don't seem to be personally worthy of that office. If their behavior, if their conduct is unworthy, then all of a sudden we we disrespect both the office and the person. But you have to hold respect for the office because that's respect for authority. So we see that, that Jacob has developed our humility, and part of humility is respect for authority. He's developed an understanding of God's promises. He's trusting God, the faith rest drill. He's calm. He's relaxed. He's building a, a logical case based on doctrine for his decision and course of action. And the result is that Rachel and Leah agree with him. They say, well, is there any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? No, because they've been cheated as well. Not only has has Jacob been cheated, but they took the but Laban took the bride price, and instead of giving it to them, he used it for his own uh, desires. He did with it what he wanted to do, and he spent what was rightfully theirs, their inheritance. And so the conclusion is: Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us, and also completely consumed our money. So they've been cheated as well. Now in verse sixteen. Down through 21, we see the last part of this episode. Verse 16, For all these riches which God has taken from our Father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Not only has God stood in Jacob's place and defended Jacob and provided for him, but in doing that, he was also protecting the inheritance that was to go to Rachel and to Leah. So Laban's wealth has simply been transferred from from him to Jacob, and Jacob now has the wealth. He has the he's the one who can provide for Rachel and Leah, and so they are in agreement with him to leave and go uh, where God wants him to go. So they pack up their bags, and Jacob rose, set his sons and his wives on the camels. They organized everything and went on a 
uh, sort of a cattle drive. He had cattle and sheep and camels and and all the servants and everybody going. This took a while to get everybody organized, but they were not only organized, but they moved quickly. They moved about 35, 40 miles a day at least because from Padan Aram to Gilead, where they're headed, where, where uh, Laban finally catches up with them, is about 400 miles, and they cover it in about a week. So that's, that's covering some territory. So they were obviously in a hurry and truly fleeing from Laban, fearful of what he would do if he caught them. Now, we're told in verse 19 that Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and while he's gone and the household's empty and nobody's uh, guarding it, Rachel snuck in and stole the household idols that were, that were, his, uh, that were her father's. Now, see, the contrast here is Rachel is vindictive. She wants to get back at Laban. She wants to do something to hurt him because these household idols, whatever they were used for, they were very important to Laban. They were a sign of his wealth and possibly an indication of who had a claim to whatever inheritance was there. And so Rachel is going to steal them to get back at her father. Now, Jacob doesn't have this sense of vindictiveness. So we see a divine viewpoint response and faith rest drill on the part of Jacob. But Rachel is trying to handle the situation herself, her own uh, dealing with her uh, own resentment and anger and hostility towards, uh, towards Laban. And so there's a play on words here to emphasize this because we have the same word used. Rachel had stolen the household idols, and then Jacob stole away. And the second part is an idiom indicating how he uh, got away in the dead of night, uh, unknown to Laban, and he didn't uh, tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled. Notice the repetition of the words there. He He's fleeing. The writer wants us to understand he's not just casually leaving. He is uh, fleeing, and he is on his way back to the land. Now, before we stop, let's just review a quick lesson on the test here, which is people test. We all face people testing. It's one of the most difficult and most consistent types of testing that we face. We deal with it every single day, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's with a uh, uh, teenagers, whether it's with uh, parents, if you're a teenager, you think the people testing are your parents, whether it's uh, with an employee or an employer or whatever it may be, we always have to deal with this problem with people, even if it's some jerk who cuts us off on the freeway. There's always problems with people, and that's because, number one, all people are sinners. And therefore, all people will fail us and disappoint us to some degree at some time. It's unavoidable because we're all, we're all sinners, and when that sin nature controls and arrogance is operative and we're self-absorbed and self-indulgent, then we're always going to be in conflict with those around us. That's point number two. When people operate on the arrogance of their sin nature in terms of self-absorption, and self-indulgence, they will always grate on other people. Now, when you get two people who are operating on their sin nature in self-absorption and self-indulgence, and they're in a marriage, boy, the sparks really fly. The problem is, a sin, is the sin nature. That is the most difficult thing. But it's not always arrogance. 
Because you see, an arrogant person can be, in his arrogance, have a great desire to make sure everyone thinks he's a great husband or make sure she thinks everybody thinks that she's a great wife. So in arrogance, they're trying to do everything uh, right to make things work. So arrogance doesn't always necessarily destroy things. But it is when you are so self-absorbed and self-indulgent that you just have to get your way to get what you want to make you happy. Point number three, people testing frequently occurs when the trends of one person's sin nature conflicts with either the divine viewpoint of another person or the other person's sin nature trends. See, if you, this is one thing, young, those of you who aren't married, make sure that, that when you marry somebody that your sin nature is compatible with their sin nature. Because when you both get out of fellowship, and you're both operating on the sin nature, you know, if your trend is towards asceticism and their trend is towards antinomianism, y'all, it's toast. You're just not going to get anywhere. So you have to make sure there's some compatibility there so that if you, you, you both get away from the Lord, you can at least uh, continue to live together without killing each other. Point number four, whenever you are perceived to be interfering with what another person thinks will make them happy, important or successful, then you will aggravate or anger them. Whenever you're in a position where somebody thinks you're keeping them from what they need in life to be happy, to, to be important, to be promoted, to be significant, then you're in trouble. And that's exactly what's happened to Jacob, is Jacob has gotten in between happiness and prosperity and his brothers-in-law. And so they are out to get him. Point number five, the result of this on the side of the other person, that is the one who's in carnality, is a complex of mental attitude sins. They develop anger, resentment, bitterness, hatred, jealousy, envy, vindictiveness. You are the source of all their problems. Every time anything goes wrong, your name is the first name out of their mouth. It's all your fault. It doesn't matter whether you know anything about it or not. You're the, it's your fault just because you exist. So when this happens, we have several options. When we are the brunt of somebody's anger, hatred, resentment, first option is that we need to treat the other person in grace and step around their carnality to whatever degree we can. But see, it's not always easy to do that. Because if, if it's a co-worker or if it's somebody that, that uh, uh, that's a sibling or an in-law that you don't really want to divorce them because you don't want to divorce your wife or your husband. You have to deal with them in grace. Second option is that we can just get out of their way physically and or geographically. And sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes you run into this with couples get married and there's a mother-in-law or father-in-law that's always interfering. And I've often had told people just move to Austin or move to California, move to Colorado, get a thousand miles between you and them, and then your marriage will have a chance to succeed. But if you're within 200 miles of your in-laws, you're always going to have that problem. So sometimes you have to get out of there geographically. That's what Jacob was facing. And then third, 
Sometimes all we can do is keep doing what we're doing on the basis of impersonal love, integrity, walking by the Holy Spirit. You may be in a job, then there's no place you can go, and there's no way you can get away from some boss who has it in for you or some co-worker who's always after you. All you can do is stay in that position. You don't have anything else you can do. It's just no other doors are open to you. That's where God's placed you, and that's the test. And so what you have to do is, is operate on the basis of impersonal love, unconditional love, no mental attitude sins, but always treating them to the best of your ability in kindness and goodness, integrity, walking by the Holy Spirit, and knowing, knowing full well that the other person is going to malign us or seek revenge, gossip, and slander us. You know what they're going to do. And you just have to put it in the hands of God and rest in the Supreme Court of Heaven and relax. Of course, we know that's easier said than done. Now, in all three of these options, we recognize that we're under attack and that we must reside in the protection of God. That's what Jacob is doing. The contrast to this is Rachel. Rachel takes the retaliation option. And she is going to steal Laban's teraphim, the household god. You see, the principle is that even in the midst of good decision-making, we always make bad decisions. Not always, but not all are really bad decisions, but we often do because that's just the way life is. It's not clear-cut. We make, we, we make one good decision, and then right in the middle of it, we make a bad decision that complicates things. But you see, God in His grace works out the perfect solution despite the fact that Rachel makes this uh, sinful, carnal error of stealing the teraphim because it puts her life in jeopardy and puts the, the, the seed in jeopardy. And so we'll come back and see how God provides protection next time when we start in verse 22. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness your encouragement, Father, to see how you work in history, working out your plan. Father, we pray that as we face tests with people, that we can relax and trust in you, apply the doctrine that we know, utilizing all of the problem-solving devices. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.